Y'all know probably about that uh, giant ship called the Titanic that sank. There's a famous movie that was number one box office for the longest time. Uh, the Titanic was this, this great ocean-going ship left from Southampton, England in 1912 and was headed for New York City. It had 2,200 people on board, real-life men, women, and kids. And uh, they were on board the, the greatest ship the world had ever seen, a ship that everybody said was unsinkable. And you know the story, how one night on their voyage, they were all awoken to chaos and instructions to get to the deck and get aboard all the, the few life rafts that were available. And uh, it was just a few hours, really, I think three hours in total from the time the Titanic hit the iceberg until the time it disappeared under the water. And it took 1,500 people with it. Uh, it's a catastrophe. It is the, the worst peacetime maritime disaster in the history of the world. I don't know if that's, that's what Wikipedia says. That seems a little far-fetched, but it's bad. And now I read on Friday that the wreck itself is deteriorating. Uh, it's been under the ocean for over 100 years, and so the cold salt water and apparently iron-eating bacteria is causing it to just completely dissolve. And so there's a, a new team of scientists who are doing an expedition. They want to document everything that's down there, especially the animals that have made their home in the Titanic. They want to document it all before it all disappears. And when I read that story on Friday about this, this science team, it really drove home to me what we're going to see today in our passage. Uh, the ocean is a dangerous place. Uh, we go to the beach and we enjoy the waves softly rolling in, but, you know, you get a little bit out there and it's a whole different thing entirely. The ocean can contain and conceal the wreck of ships and airplanes and, and nobody even knows where it went. They just think it went down somewhere, but they have no clue. The ocean hides it away. Uh, its hurricanes devastate islands and coastlines, destroy homes, uh, take people's lives as they've already done this year. Uh, and then you, you start to think about the depths of the ocean and the, the dangerous sea creatures that are there and who knows what else, stuff we haven't even discovered yet. And when you put all that together, it, it just means that some people are so unnerved by the ocean that they refuse to go in it or to go on it. They keep their feet firmly planted on dry land. Is it, can I get an amen? Is there anybody like that? Harry's like that. I know there's got to be a few more. Yeah, the ocean's not your thing. You go to the mountains for vacation, and I understand that. But... If you want to find a person in the history of the world who was for sure a landlubber, uh, you'd have to look for an ancient Israelite. And the ancient Israelites were nomadic herdspeople, tradespeople, and peasant farmers. They were not seagoing people. Uh, in fact, they associated the sea with sin, restlessness, and if you think back to Genesis chapter 1, the primordial chaos over which the Spirit of God hovered and out of which God brought our ordered world. The ocean's not a good place in ancient Israelite theology. Which raises the question, what would have to happen to get one of these ancient Israelites to say bon voyage to the dry land and go out to sea? Now, if you are here last week, you know, uh, Jonah did this exact thing. He went for a ship, and he was doing so because he was trying to run away from God. Last week, we began our study of this book. It's going to take us through the end of the month. And we saw Jonah's disobedience to God's clear word to him. Uh, the book begins, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its wickedness has come up 
before me. And rather than heading east to Nineveh, the Assyrian city on the Tigris River, Jonah headed west for Tarshish, a place I told you was the gates of paradise, an adventure away from the presence of the Lord. And as a rebel and runaway, Jonah found himself at sea and in a mess. Uh, He discovered just how dangerous sin and disobedience can be. Uh, He's living proof of the old saying that my mom used to tell me, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you can ever imagine. Jonah found this out, and, and I think God wants to remind you of that this morning. I think this could be the most important sermon you ever heard in your entire life, that literally your life could change in the next 45 minutes because of what we're going to see in Jonah's life. Uh, this is not a foreign concept. You don't have to be a person spending months and months at sea and going through storms with waves 50, 60 feet high, crashing over the bow of the ship. You don't have to experience that. We all know what it feels like to be sinking fast, taking on water. We're bailing as fast as we can, but it seems like nothing we do is working. We're done for. We've all been there. We've all done that. And this morning, I want you to leave here knowing the heart of God for people like you and me, the heart of God for rebels and runaways. And I want you to find the mercy and forgiveness that God has put on display in Jesus. And so we're going to look here at Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, I want you to see the heart of God for rebels and runaways. We're going to read this whole thing straight through and then just kind of come back and dip in here and there. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. If you're not used to looking at the Bible, the big numbers are chapters, the little numbers are verses. We're starting on 1, 4. This is what God's Word says. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you're sleeping? Get up and call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell, unsurprisingly, on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you, that the sea may calm down for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
Now listen, when we left Jonah last week, he had left his home in Israel and headed down to the port city of Joppa. They call it Haifa today. And he got on this ship to take him to Tarshish. Uh, Joppa was the kind of place that any rebel and any runaway could find a ship going somewhere. And Jonah found him one. You got to think from the sailor's perspective, Jonah must have come aboard just about like every other passenger had before. There's another no-name guy going to this exotic destination, Tarshish, and since they were headed in that direction, this is a little extra money for the captain, and uh, no problem. But their assessment had to change pretty quickly as they get out on the Mediterranean Sea and conditions start to deteriorate, as they say. Right, these sailors had been on the sea thousands of times before, and they had seen storms before. But something was different about this one. You know, this one was scary even for them, not just us land lovers, Harry. You know, they were even afraid. And when a sailor is afraid of a storm, you know there's trouble. Their frantic prayers, each man praying to his God, indicates that they believed some God must have been behind their misfortune. This wasn't any natural storm. This was a God acting. And our narrator confirms their suspicion. The storm is no coincidence and it's not just the product of the natural atmospheric processes of humidity and temperature and barometric pressure coming together to create the worst storm you've ever seen. Now, this is an act of God's judgment for Jonah's sin. He, he, he says it right out of the gate. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea. Listen this morning, if you want to understand God's heart for rebels and runaways, the first thing we got to see is that God takes their sin seriously. He takes her sin seriously. There's no way on earth that Jonah was going to be able to escape God's will for his life. Jonah could run, but God could catch him. And the storm was God's act of judgment on Jonah's sin. You know, I find it easy to put myself into Jonah's sandals and to imagine what it must have been like because I've been here before. The most dangerous place any person can be is outside the will of God. And I've been there, and I have done that, and I have felt the discipline and punishment that God often sends our way. He takes sin seriously. And one theologian puts it like this. He says, there's a definitive link between sin and punishment. When it comes to sin, punishment's not a possibility. It's an inevitability. God warned the first people the day that they disobeyed his command, they'd surely die. And throughout the scriptures, this principle is reiterated time and time again. Paul sums it up well in the passage Mike read for us. The wages of sin is death. Sorry, that's Romans 6, not Romans 3. The wages of sin is death. So while we may occasionally evade immediate consequences, we can be sure that our sins will find us out. God takes sin seriously. Nobody escapes the judgment of God. And the sailors knew it better than Jonah. Jonah's, I love it. Some of y'all sleep so deeply, you would be right there with Jonah, underneath the deck, snoozing. Okay, my wife does not sleep deeply, and I do. Uh, and so she takes the form of this captain later on. But the sailors clearly saw the writing on the wall. Jonah's asleep under the deck, and here they are losing their mind. They're frantically praying to God. See, apparently Jonah hadn't just signed on with the Phoenician crew or uh, the Tyrrhenian crew or something like that. He had signed on with a multi-ethnic group. A pluralistic group. They had a lot of gods at their disposal. And so the captain instructed each man to call on his god because they were completely sure which god they had offended. 
And so as each man fell to his knees and started offering these frantic prayers, none of them worked. Whichever God they had on speed dial wasn't answering. So they did the next best thing. Having exhausted their religious possibilities, they turned to what they could do themselves. They threw the cargo overboard. And my understanding is that the heavier a ship is, the, the, the lower down in the water it sinks, and the more prone it is to capsizing. And they thought if they relieved their ship of some of the weight, that they would get some extra buoyancy and ride over the waves. Sounds like a foolproof plan. Except this was not any standard storm. And even when they had exhausted all the potential of lightening their load, they were still in desperate straits. They're like the people on the Titanic. What are we going to do? This is an unsinkable ship. We didn't bring enough life rafts for all the people on board. How do we get out of this mess? And so I imagine, and maybe you can put on your imagination hat with me, that the captain goes down under the hold, probably to cry in a corner so his men don't see him, or to maybe, I don't know, look for something else, and there he sees a snoozer, Jonah, sleeping. And he's shocked. What do you think you're doing? We're about to die, and here you are asleep. And, and the captain's words ring in his ears, I'm sure. Jonah awakes up to this chaotic scene, and all he hears is, get up and call on your God. And the interesting thing about this, and it's kind of hidden in our English Bibles, is that this captain uses the same two Hebrew words that Jonah used back in verse 2 when he said, Arise and cry out. Kum karah. Get up, call on your God. Arise and cry out. I mean, Jonah snaps into the reality of his world, chaotic, people yelling, storms going, waves up and down, and here are these words from God ringing in his ear. He can't get away from God. And I imagine as he tries to piece together this new surrounding, here he was dreaming, and now he's in the midst of a chaotic scene about to die. He has to come face to face with the fact that he's not going to Tarshish. He can't escape the presence of the Lord. He can't even get away from those stinking words that God had spoken to him. But see, the sailors don't know that yet. They don't understand. And so Jonah's able to play dumb and avoid taking responsibility. And even when the guy says to call on his God, we're not told that Jonah does. It's interesting. He's just trying to disappear into the shadows and let somebody else take responsibility. I had nothing to do with this, guys. If somebody gets a right idea, they're going to roll the dice. Or they're going to pull straws and see who gets the short straw. They're going to leave it up to chance, trusting that the gods out there who ordered the world are going to help them identify the marked man, the man who is wanted. And of course, like I said, inevitably, the dice indicate Jonah as the man. You're the man. And the gig is up. And I love it. Because you see this scene, perfectly portrayed for us. This back and forth. On the one hand, you have frantic prayers, frenzied self-improvement and removal of the cargo trying to solve the, the problems. And, and then on the other hand, you have Jonah disengaged, totally isolated, hiding out under the deck, sleeping, enjoying his little world while everybody around him is about to die. And in a swift second, everything comes crashing down. The sailors know it's Jonah's fault, and now they have some real hope. Maybe they'll finally figure out which God it is that they've offended and what they need to do to be saved. And so they put it to him. Who are you, man? What are you doing here? What, what, where are you coming from? What people do you belong to? And he gives them a pretty standard confession of faith. Uh, he says, I'm a Hebrew, 
and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And if you just look at this, this whole passage centers on verses 9 and 10. It builds to it and it flows from it. Uh, This is clearly what God wants us to take a look at. Something about Jonah saying this is important. And if you just look at this confession of faith, it's standard, it's biblical, it's orthodox. It accurately describes who God is and how he relates to the world. He's the God of heaven and he's the God of sea and dry land. Uh, This phrase isn't even all that novel. I mean, it's throughout the Old Testament. It it shows up time and time again, especially when God's people are interacting with Gentiles because it provides for them some kind of point of contact. While all the Gentile nations had their own particular gods, the Israelites could say, well, our God, Yahweh, is the one who created our world and is the God of heaven. He's enthroned above all your gods. He's bigger and better than they are. And he actually hears our prayers, and he gave us a law. And more than that, he made our world, and he controls it. It seems especially appropriate, given Jonah's circumstances, if he's the God of sea and dry land. Maybe this God has some answers for us, because we're out on the sea, and we wish we were on dry land. Maybe he can put two and two together for us. But the confession's accurate. But Jonah's part in it is really questionable. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. I mean, biblically speaking, to fear the Lord means to understand who he is, to understand who God is, and to order your life appropriately, to to act in such a way that acknowledges his authority and lordship over us. That's what it means to fear the Lord. That's why the Proverbs and the Psalms could say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear the Lord is the essence of a relationship with him. That's the appropriate way to conduct yourself if God is who God is. But Jonah says, I fear the Lord. And we think, yeah, but do you really fear the Lord, Jonah? Let's think through this. Do you really mean what you say? I mean, given Jonah's disobedience in flight to Tarshish, it's hard to, at least for me, and y'all can get with me afterwards, it's hard for me to reconcile these two things. That a person could say with their mouth, yeah, I fear the Lord, God of heaven, maker of sea and dry land, and yet do everything he can to order and construct his life in opposition and rebellion to that Lord. And even the sailors question Jonah's commitment to his theological beliefs. Uh, When they find out he's trying to run away from the God of land and sea, they say, what have you done? How could you do this? Uh, If you believe what you say you believe, you've clearly offended the big guy, the one who's in charge of everything. You've made a terrible mistake. And I think this is the key of the passage. Jonah is a perfect example of the kind of person who takes pride in their theology but lives a disobedient life. The kind of religious hypocrite that Jesus often had to deal with when he was on earth. He talked to the religious elite and he said, hey, the prophets were right when they spoke about you guys. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He called them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look good and well put together. You know all the right answers, and you've done all the right things. But you're inwardly dead men's bones. That's Jonah to a T. He's the kind of guy that James has to later instruct. He says, don't forget, y'all, faith without works is dead because even the demons believe that God is one, and they tremble. Right theology was of no use to Jonah. Uh, it, was in, it wasn't even any more useful than the pagans' frantic prayers and their self-improvement project of lightening the load. None of that mattered. It's, it's all useless. Their sin is serious. 
Doesn't matter if they have the right answers, if they've checked the right boxes. God was as equally disgusted with the self-righteous idolatry of the ancient pagans as he was the hypocrisy of ancient Israelites. And I just think of that verse that Mike did read earlier. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's almost like he wants to say there's no distinction between you pagan sailors and you Jewish prophets. Y'all are all about to sink in the ship, and what are you going to do about it? Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And so we don't really even have to imagine. We don't even have to put ourselves in Jonah's sandals. We don't even have to imagine the spray of the sea on our faces in this giant storm. We know full well the reality of our sin. Y'all know you're sinners, and I know I'm a sinner. And I know deep inside that God takes sin seriously, and inevitably, not possibly, I'm going to face his judgment. So you want to know God's heart for rebels and runaways. There it is. God takes sin seriously. But then we get to a deeper issue and the heart of it. Because if God takes sin seriously, how should we respond? And I just want you to know the way we deal with sin matters. It's a fact of life, but the way we deal with it matters. And as I see it, there are basically three avenues a person could take in dealing with their sin that are portrayed in this story. The first is really clear. right? You could rely on human religion and good works. And I think that's what we see in the pagan sailors, right? Each man calls on his gods. They, they are at least farther along than Jonah in that they recognize the storm is an act of judgment from some deity somewhere. But they're just ignorant of which deity that is. And so they offer up prayers hoping that one of them sticks, that one of them gets through to the God who's mad, and they get the God to calm down. And, and people work this way today. You know, we offer up frantic prayers ourselves to vague deities, saints, aliens, the universe, hoping that somebody out there somewhere is going to hear us and come to our aid. Human works, human idolatry, human religion. Or we might try to save ourselves by becoming financially secure or healthy and skinny, invincible from the decay that's brought on by the world of sin. And so we think, hey, you know, if I can just build up my bank account enough, I'll be immune from the storms of life. Or if I eat all organic and drink plenty of water, I'll be invincible from cancer and disease. But that's not the way it works. To place our hope in idols or works is like those people rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. You're awful busy, but I don't think you're going to get the results you're hoping for. We're like frantic pagans on the deck of a ship shooting off prayers to somebody somewhere, and they're powerless to save us. So the way we deal with sin matters. Don't do that. Don't rely on human religion and your own works. But at the same time, don't rely on doctrinal self-assuredness. This is the one that stepped on my toes as I was preparing this. Because the second way we might attempt to assure ourselves that everything's going to be fine is because we know all the right answers, because we've done all the right things. And, and y'all know what I mean about this, church family. When you know all the right answers to the Sunday school questions, and even the kids do, they just say, Jesus, and it gets through. <laughs> Jesus. Or you know that you can think back to a time when you prayed this prayer and raised your hand. You can think back to the day when you were baptized. Now, I think that's the essential equivalent of what Jonah did. I'm a Hebrew, which means, hey, I belong to the descendants of Abraham. I'm one of God's chosen people. That's who I am. 
That's his self-identity. He's one of God's people. He even points to the way he says he lives his life. I fear the Lord. I think the modern equivalent might be, well, yeah, you know, I'm a member of Central Baptist Church, and I, I believe that once a person is saved, they're always saved. So, you know, uh, really, does it matter? That's doctrinal self-assuredness. That's when you ask somebody, uh, hey, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And they tell you what church they go to. You understand that they're not connecting the dots in the way they need to. We're not going to be saved by doctrinal assuredness as if it was simply a matter of believing the right things or doing the right religious stuff. I think maybe that's where Jonah was at risk of losing sight of reality. Um, he saw these sailors, and he couldn't help but despise them because they weren't Hebrews, and they didn't fear the Lord. It's obvious they're Gentile pagans praying off to their gods. Uh, I'm sure he despised them as much as he despised the Ninevites. And so he looked down his nose at them. Uh, after all, he had the right answers that they had the wrong answers to. Which God is God of heaven? Not Baal, not Asherah. It's Yahweh. Don't you guys know that? Come on. Uh, he knew all the right things to do. He knew how to keep himself ritually clean. He knew which sacrifices would put him back in God's graces. He knew which way to pray when he prayed seven times a day. They didn't. Here they are, losing their minds on the deck of a ship. He thought he had the right answers and had done the right things. But brothers and sisters, doctrinal self-assuredness is just as dangerous as idolatry and human works. Our doctrine and our religion can't save us from the burden of our guilt. If God takes, us serious, God takes sin seriously, it's not enough for us to just have the right answers and to do the right things. We've got to get deeper beyond that. The right response to human sin is actually what we see in Jonah in verse 12. Finally, the sleeping prophet wakes up and realizes what's real. And in verse 12 he says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me... This great storm has come upon you. This is the only right way to deal with sin, and I hope you're listening to me carefully. The only right way to deal with sin is to acknowledge it with a humble heart. Acknowledge sin with a humble heart. See, by verse 12, Jonah has finally been brought through the ringer enough to realize that maybe he is the culprit, and maybe his right thinking and his right living weren't good enough for God. Maybe he finally recognized that God was right in sending the storm, that Jonah was a sinner fully deserving of the righteous wrath of God who made him. Maybe he finally came to see for once that he was a rebel, that he was running away from God's plan for his life, that he had rebelled. And so finally, he realizes, what can I do but surrender to the judgment of God? What can I do? Throw me overboard. It's my fault, guys. And if you want it to be calm, that's the only way forward. I think, I think Jonah's actions reveal that for all of us, rebels, runaways, sinners, saints, skeptics, however you define yourself, the only way forward for us is to recognize our sin and acknowledge that God is right in his judgment for it. And so, yeah, you want to understand the heart of God? Number one, you've got to know that he takes sin seriously. Number two, you've got to know that it matters how you deal with sin because if you can humbly acknowledge your sin, this story holds out hope. Though God takes sin seriously, he offers radical forgiveness to anybody who will surrender to him. And I think this forgiveness is obvious by the time we get to verse 16, when we're told that you know, the sailors are apparently, they have some kind of moral compass. Because if 
most of us found out that all we got to do to calm the storm down is to throw the guy overboard. Uh, we'd be tr tripping over each other trying to get him out of the ship, you know. But they're like, at least like, hey, let us give it a shot. We don't want to be guilty of this man's innocent blood. I mean, if God's after him, what's he going to do to us if we get rid of him? So they try to row back to shore, and finally they realize that God's too big. They can't row fast enough or hard enough to overcome him. And so they do what Jonah told them to do. They throw him overboard. And afterwards, we're told that they feared the Lord. You know, they, they feared the storm. And then they were exceedingly frightened after Jonah told them who he was and what he had done. But now they, they, they fear the Lord. Jonah, who said, I fear the Lord. And you're like, yeah, do you really? These men feared the Lord and showed it. They offered prayers to God and vows. And I think it's beautiful, really, what happens in these few verses. And, you know, Jonah's here overboard, sinking, lifeless, or near there to the bottom of the ocean. And the sea calms down, and these men are left to try to put the pieces together. And from God's perspective, you just got to think he's smiling. Because though Jonah's disobedience was the cause of the storm, his death was the very thing that brought about the sailor's salvation. And it's a huge reversal. I mean, this is the prophet who was willing to put his life at risk to avoid preaching to Gentiles. And God's like, hey, whether you want to preach to Gentiles or not, you're going to. And God saved these Gentile sailors. It's beautiful. I mean, it bursts through. You, you can't hide the character of God behind a storm. Here he comes, Yahweh, the God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The God who's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The God who's saving a people from every nation, tribe, and language. Doesn't matter where they are, where they came from. God's after them. And I get to the point where I just want to cry. You know, and I did that several times this week as I'm banging away at the computer, typing out my sermon, thinking all the words I'm going to say. I just, I just can't fathom it. Who, who are these guys to deserve to encounter with the God of heaven, the Lord of sand and sea, or however you want to put it. Who are they? And, and who am I? Who am I? But here's God, being God, offering radical forgiveness to anybody who will humbly acknowledge their sin and turn to Him in faith. It's who He is. You know, and you might ask yourself, like I did, wow, what what makes a God who's righteous and just and who'd be willing to send a terrible storm to get after a wayward prophet, what makes him all of a sudden just flip the switch and be like, all right, guys, here I am, the God who saves? And this is actually a deep theological problem that lots of people have an issue with and that the Apostle Paul wrote down for us in Scripture because it's huge. It, it reveals to us the heart of God for rebels and runaways. Romans 3, he says, All sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace, not by their frantic prayer, their good religious deeds, but by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. I want you to really listen to this. Show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the, here's the question. Here's the theological conundrum. If God takes sin seriously, how can he also offer radical forgiveness? Doesn't that mean he would violate the need for justice? And Paul says, no, God has a perfect solution so that he can be just 
He can continue to exist as the just and righteous God that He always has been. And yet He can justify and declare righteous those whose sin He despises. He says He did it in His Son. That He offered His only Son, Jesus, to be a propitiation, which is just a Bible word that means an atoning sacrifice. A sacrifice that covers over the guilt of sin. And He did it for rebels and runaways like us. See, because God takes sin seriously, sin must be punished. Okay? Inevitability, not a possibility. It's a fact of the universe. Not even one atom can deviate from God's will for it without coming under the divine condemnation. God rules and reigns over all things, and anything that finds itself outside His will comes under His judgment. But, rather than requiring justice from those who committed the sin, God put forth Jesus as a propitiation to be received by faith. What this means is that Jesus came and lived a sinless life, perfectly obeying God in every way, doing what God said, saying what God said to say, all the way to the point of death on the cross. The Bible tells us that death was not his own death. He didn't deserve that. God takes sin seriously, but Jesus hadn't sinned. Instead, what Jesus did is die in the place of those who deserve it. He took on the punishment of all who put their faith in him. He suffered in our place for the penalty of our sin. And because of his obedience to God's will, because sin had no hold over him, God raised him up and seated him at his right hand and gave him the name of honor, the place of honor, the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Is Lord. I fear the Lord, God of heaven, maker of sea and dry land, Jesus who upholds the world by the word of his power, the Jesus who came and lived a sinless life for me. Do you want to know the heart of God for rebels and runaways? The heart of God for you guys, for me? Listen carefully. And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his own son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God shows his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we're healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Every last one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, the heart of God for rebels and runaways is crystal clear. No storm can hide it from us. No circumstances can obscure it. Christ suffered under divine judgment so rebels and runaways could receive extravagant forgiveness. Listen, Jonah sinking below the sea is a beautiful picture of the cross. Now, this was the final act of judgment on Jonah from God's perspective. Finally, God had got his man. Here he goes, lifeless to the bottom of the ocean. But in the same token, it was the very means by which God brought salvation for the sailors. And that's what the cross shows us, that on the cross we see the perfect justice of God displayed against human sin, and yet at the same time, it's the means by which God saved us. And the truth of it is, is everybody in this room needs that message. Every one of us stands guilty before a just and holy God. Listen, we're either strangers to God like those sailors on the ship, We've got our own religions and own works to rely on. Or we're rebels, constantly rejecting the authority of God. 
We know his law. We know what he requires of us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it seems everywhere we look, there's something more convenient and more delightful to place our trust and hope in. But God would say to us this morning, it doesn't matter the circumstances of your life, whether you feel like you're in a storm or whether you're not. Judgment is inevitable. And so I wonder, have you recognized that one day you will face the God who made you and give an account for your life? He'll find you one day. Hopefully it'll be in this life when you're up to no good. The voice of the Holy Spirit comes crushing in. says, don't do that. There's a God here who loves you and has a better plan for your life than to make that terrible decision. If not then, though, the Bible says it's appointed once for a person to die, and then comes judgment. And on that day, what will your hope be? Will your hope be in self-made religion? You know, I found a way that works for me, and I gave my all, and I think, you know, when I get to heaven, God's going to see my good intentions. He's going to see my heart, and he's going to know that I wasn't a schmuck like my neighbor. I was better than my brother-in-law, that's for sure, you know. What are you going to say? I hope you're not hoping in what you've done. Will you place your confidence in right theology? God, I was a Baptist. I was actually a pastor. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, I was. I fear the Lord. I was baptized in 2004. That's why I'm going to heaven. Or will you, like Jonah, acknowledge your sin and the punishment you deserve and cast yourself completely on the mercy of God offered in the cross of Jesus? Listen, I can't do it any harder. I'm going to plead with you with everything I've got in me. And by the Holy Spirit of God, do not leave today before you cry out to God that he might save you. That's what he wants for you. The life you've lived that's created all the mess that you're dealing with, it's not God's plan for your life. He loves you. He created you for a relationship with him. Why would he want you to suffer? Why would he want you to sink to the depths of life? He doesn't want that for you. He wants you to know him deeply. He wants you to find fullness of joy in his presence now and forever. The truth of it is, we all find ourselves there. I mean, at times, God's people, y'all know this, we drift away. We're sleeping at the wheel of life, underneath the deck. Stuff's going on around us, and we're oblivious, ignorant of the chaos. Just living our own life. And then crisis hits. And then what do you do? Then you get back to church and you try to put together the pieces of your life. But brother and sister, are you facing unanswered questions? Are you, are you wondering, why am I bailing water so hard, but it just keeps filling up? Are you struggling against winds that you're powerless to overcome? Or have you considered whether or not this is God's discipline and judgment in your life? Do you have unrepented sin present in you? Have you offered yourself up to God, as the Psalms tell us to do? Search me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me. Have you offered yourself totally exposed to God, humbly acknowledging your sin? This morning, give it up. Surrender to God's assessment. Acknowledge that he's right when he judges. And remember that forgiveness is yours in Jesus and friend, maybe you don't know Jesus. In a room, even a room like this, there are people here who don't know Christ. And you know exactly who you are. You know it because I've been up here 
weeping and snotting over myself, but the Holy Spirit of God has been pounding at your heart, speaking to you. This is you. You're the man. You're Jonah. The dice has been cast, and the lot belongs to the Lord, and it has pointed directly at you. You know this is about you. You're here today because God wanted you to hear this truth. There's nothing you can do to escape it. And so maybe you've always had the sense that your life doesn't measure up, that it doesn't matter what you do or how hard you try, you never quite attained the standard that you, you think you belong at. And it's true, you don't. But for the first time this morning, maybe you're learning who's doing the measuring. You don't measure yourself. You don't get to apply the yardstick of the neighbor, the brother-in-law. God assesses. And what God says goes. And so maybe like the sailors on this ship, you've come to the reality. You've been offering up some prayers, hoping they'd stick. But now you know the God you need to pray to. This morning, can I offer to you a prayer that you could pray? You may even want to pray it with me and after me. Maybe you could pray it out loud, under your breath, or in your heart. You say something like this. God, I know I've sinned against you. And I'm sorry. I believe your son Jesus suffered my punishment. And he wants to forgive me. Help me to trust in him to save me. Can you pray that prayer? For the first time or the thousandth time? Man, I hope you can. I hope that that's a real reflection of what your heart is feeling. That is what God would have you hear this morning from his word. God doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he's brought you here today to hear his invitation that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In a few minutes, Mike's going to come and Lead us in a song, and I'm going to come do an announcement. And then you can go out, back to your life, back to the way things were. Or you can know that your sins are forgiven. And the debt you owe to a righteous and holy God has been paid. God takes sin seriously, but Christ suffered under God's judgment so that rebels and runaways like you and me could experience his forgiveness. Don't leave this place without experiencing it, without knowing that your sins are forgiven. If you need help praying like that, like I'd be, I'm going to be down here while Mike sings, and you can come talk to me. There are a room full of people who'd love nothing more than to help you pray that prayer. Lean over and ask them, will you pray with me? I don't know what I'm feeling, but I know I'm feeling something. Can you pray with me? They'd love to pray with you. And if after service you want to talk, I'd love to talk with you. But most of all, I hope that you'll do the business that you know you need to do with God because he loves you. He delights in saving rebels and runaways. Will y'all pray with me?